All right, good morning to you. Mike Smith coming to you this morning with another packed show for you as we continue to follow the story of our lives here, the COVID-19 pandemic. It was a beautiful Easter long weekend. I sure hope you enjoyed it with your families. Traffic on BC ferries was below the usual levels for a long weekend. However, Lots of reports out there over the weekend about travelers heading out to BC tourist towns and other communities where they're simply not welcome at this time. Have a listen to this here. This is Gabby Wickstrom, the mayor of Port McNeil on Vancouver Island. She posted this to Facebook. I'm asking you again, um, please don't use our grocery stores. Um, We thank you for wanting to be here. We know we love this region, but we just don't want to see you here at this time and so i would just ask respectfully for you to be back in your own home communities all right most of these communities of course welcoming visitors with open arms at the best of times but these are not the best of times and it's it's very strange to see this type of thing with town saying just please stay away at least for now we're going to talk about that coming up first in the show we got some great guests lined up for you standing by on that also coming up on the show today covid19 behind bars the outbreak of the virus in bc prisons i'm going to speak to the president of the prison guards union on the show today they are sounding the alarm on covid19 in bc jails also is the bc government right to shut down all provincial parks this is a tough one i think there's definitely a case to shut down parks near big cities that have been attracting a lot of people but when you talk about some of the more remote parks in the province does it make sense to shut down every park in bc could people not go there and socially distance in a park we're already seeing a backlash on this one with some of the outfitters and the guide associations and the outdoor recreation council of bc saying Come on, maybe this is going too far. So we got that on the show for you as well today. But first up, let's talk about tourist towns around British Columbia uh, alarmed as visitors ignore public health advisories to stay home. Do we need tighter restrictions on travel within the province? Let me introduce you now to Tahira Rockefeller from Galliano Island. She runs a grocery store there. She is a trustee with the Islands Trust. She's a volunteer firefighter on Galliano. Tahira, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it a lot. What was the weekend like there on Galliano? Um, we definitely saw a reduced amount of visitors. Uh, I think it was uh, because of the ferry schedules had also cut out some sailings. So, okay. but we did see uh, uh, we did see an influx. Yeah. Okay, so you did see some people there that would be fair to say you would rather have not seen there. Well, I mean, I always welcome visitors as we have a um a business and as yeah. a, a you know, it supports our local economy, but yeah, at this time it it definitely uh, is, is not good for our, our uh, remote healthcare system. What is what was the attitude of like people who live on Galliano if they see visitors and is I mean, everybody knows everybody else on the island, I'm sure. So I mean, probably some visitors that stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, what what was the attitude that people had about that? Um, well, from my perspective in the grocery store, the, my staff were, they were upset. Uh, the, a lot of people that were visiting seemed to not respect the, the unique um, distancing measures that we've taken on the island. Like uh, places in the city have 
guards at the door and recommendations or people enforcing that. But here we don't have the capacity to ensure that. So we have small little bottles of hand sanitizer on steps next to the door. And as a community, we've evolved to adapt to that and use those measures. But um, people that from come from away aren't aware of those. Okay, so were some of your staff, was anything said? Like, did any of your staff say to people like, hey, like maybe you shouldn't be here right now? Uh, nobody was quite as vocal as that because we do yeah. strive for good customer service. But there <laughs> was, we did have to, we did have to reach and make a higher level of, um, of effort to to curb that. Right. Speaking of Tahira Rockefeller, she lives on Galliano Island. She's one of the trustees there. What is the concern with people coming over? Like you mentioned the the healthcare system. Like, what kind of facilities do you have over there if someone did get sick? So I think that's the aspect that's been missing is the education for visitors because when when you're on the island, we have a, a local healthcare clinic that's staffed part-time right now by a medical doctor, but it's only during open hours and any time out of those hours on weekends or evenings, you're at the, um, your, your healthcare system is going to be one ambulance and it's going to be a handful of volunteer firefighters. And while we're trained yeah. professionals, we're also suffering from the lack of uh, adequate personal protection equipment that the rest of the world right now is seeing. Um, and there's only two helicopters in the entire province to, to medevac people out of here in severe distress. So if, on a good day, you can make it to a hospital in an hour and a half, and on a bad day with like low cloud or high wind, it could be six hours. Right. Now you're a volunteer firefighter yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah. So have you have you had to medevac anybody off the island? Um, well, I'm I'm not at liberty to uh, to, okay. to express that. But yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. What do you want seeing? What do you want to see done here? Um, I don't have any suggestions other than possibly, I mean, I don't know what the ferries can take, what measures the province or BC ferries can take, but it has. it is important that people know they're putting their own lives at risk when they're coming to a small community, because even though you can see Vancouver, you're many hours from medical attention. And if even if you have a house on the island or property, and it is your right yeah. to visit it, you also have a house then in a in a place that probably is closer to um, a larger medical system that's more uh, that's more equipped to deal with this situation. So it during the best of times when no one's sick on the island, it, it is a great place to come to. But but if in the in the situation where people start getting sick, it's a very um, you come to a very remote community. Tara, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me today, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it. To hear a Rockefeller, she's on Galliano. Let's go to Salt Spring Island now. Peter Luckham is the uh, island's trust chair. Peter, thanks for doing this. Sure. Good morning, Mike. Thank you for your interest in the uh, Gulf Islands, and uh, I want to thank Tahira for her great words there. Yeah, for sure. Do you agree with a lot of what she said there? Um, well, uh, she said she said a lot. Um, certainly, uh, our communities are vulnerable, and um, we're definitely supporting the provincial call for um, uh, reducing your your travel, um, only traveling for uh, necessary uh, purposes. And um, certainly the, the numbers uh, this weekend um, on the ferries with the reduced capacity do seem to be down. The reporting from BC Ferries indicates that. And certainly on, uh, on the islands, I actually live on Thetis Island, although I'm the chair of Salt Spring. I checked in with a number of the islands last night to see what the um, uh, travel uh, statistics looked like. And uh, all in all, it's, it's quiet for a Easter long weekend. However, there are some people that are not getting the message. And um, what we need to do is encourage those people to um, 
realize the potential impacts that they're making in the communities. None of us want to be the person that brings this kind of um, uh, a virus to a community or our family or friends. Yeah. And um, the risk is too high, and British Columbia is doing very well according to the statistics that are coming out. And we need to stay the course, and we need to stay at home. Okay, so, what uh, what if someone owns a, a property over there, whether it's on Thetis Island, Salt Spring Island, any of the Gulf Islands? Maybe they live in Vancouver, Victoria, but they've got a, a second home or a cottage or something over there. W- are, would you say they're within their rights to come over there, or would you or would you encourage them to stay home? Well, there's there's two questions there, actually. Are they within their rights? Yes, they are. Is it the right thing to do? Not unless you absolutely have to. And and so you have to take that, make that personal choice, make that decision that the, the, the requirement for your travel is absolutely necessary. Um, a getaway weekend really isn't uh, a sufficient reason at this particular time. Okay, I've seen other communities have taken more sort of direct action to Fino on the island, set up a checkpoint on the highway, uh, manned by some park rangers and an RCMP officer, and just sort of politely telling people maybe turn around. Do you think that some of the Gulf Islands might try to do something like that, or would you like to see the government step in with some more enforcement against against uh, non-essential travel? Well, I don't know what that would actually look like, um, and so it's hard for me to say one way or the other. I think we continue to uh, need to do strong messaging for people to realize the impacts that they might be potentially making in these small, vulnerable communities. As Tahira had said, um, the ability to be able to just respond daily to normal uh, incidents on islands is a challenge. Um, if uh, we're having to respond to people that are uh, sick with this COVID virus, it, uh, cha- it uh, compromises all of our responders and all of our community um, in order to be able to, uh, to, right. to support that. So it's best just to, uh, at this time, uh, this, the longer we stay isolated, the quicker we'll get through this. And you can't uh, emphasize that message strong enough. Peter, thank you for coming on. Okay, cheers. I appreciate it. Peter Luckham, he is the chair of the Islands Trust. They're the trustees that represent the Gulf Islands, their municipal government. This is not a time to be going traveling, even if it's to a summer home or a cottage. We hope that everybody is off enjoying their weekend, spending time with their with their close family, with their households, and uh, in taking the time to unwind and to be kind to each other. All right, welcome back. Of course, uh, Provincial Health Officer Donnie, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, they're encouraging people to stay home, to not be engaging in non-essential travel, even within British Columbia. Uh, we did see reduced traffic on BC ferries over the weekend, but as you just heard uh, from the reports that we just had there from the Gulf Islands, still people not getting the message. Check in now with Paul Manley. He is the Green Party MP for Nanaimo Ladysmith. Uh, Paul, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks what for are you here? Thank you for doing it. What are you hearing from people on this issue? Well, I saw a lot of uh, chatter on social media this this weekend when there was reports of the ferries uh, filling up with people with kayaks on on the top of their cars, and people interviewed at the ferry docks saying that they, you know, were just heading over to the island to get a, a break from the city. Um, you know, the the federal government, Transport Canada, put out uh, measures to restrict. Uh, non-essential travel uh, for tourism or recreation. And and these measures were in place on April 5th. And 
you know, I think that people, I'm, I'm a big believer in civil liberties and for people to make their own decisions. And so I don't uh, like the idea of, of people having to be stopped uh, from, from traveling, but, and our ferries are an essential service. This is part of our highway system, but yeah. people need to respect the fact that there are huge sacrifices being made right now. Uh, I know healthcare workers in my community who can't stay with their families because they have to, uh, you know, they want to stay safe. And when, when those families see reports about healthcare workers dying in other countries, they're very concerned for their loved ones. And we have businesses that have shut down where people are, you know, could very well lose, their life savings and, and uh, their livelihood because they're making those sacrifices. And we're all making these sacrifices. The government has, the federal government is putting $180 billion of taxpayers' dollars into trying to keep uh, people um, in their homes and fed during this crisis. And people need to respect these things so that, and, and listen to what the health authorities are telling us. Just stay home. Okay. There is no need for any non-essential travel. And I know, some people do need to come over to the island uh, for various reasons, and uh, we also need to respect the fact that that you know that this is also our our lifeline for food. So we have essential workers, truck drivers who are who are bringing over supplies uh, to the island, and we need to to make sure that they stay safe as well. It's, okay. It's, Speaking of Green Party MP Paul Manley, you've written a letter to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Premier John Horgan on this issue. What do you want to see the two levels of government do here? Well, I think that what happened in Tofino is an example of what could be happening at the entrance to the ferry, where you know they weren't stopping people from from rolling right into Tofino, but they were actually you know stopping and asking them what why are you driving into Tofino? And, and for those that were just uh, uh, offer a, a, a drive to go to the beaches or whatever to understand it, there's nothing there for you. You know the, that uh, Tofino is shut down, that the resorts are shut down. I think I understand that Airbnb is still renting uh, places. And so, mm. you know, people may be booking to get out of town, but uh, to have, you know, maybe a checkpoint, uh, at the ferry terminals, before the ferry terminals, asking people if it's if it's essential travel or not. Because if it's not, then they should just stay home. And I get it that people in apartment buildings are having a tough time. My sister lives in downtown Vancouver. My younger brother lives in downtown Mexico City, and my older brother lives in in, in downtown Taiwan. And um, Taiwan, I would say they've they've managed to deal with this property by by giving everybody uh, masks. They they get three masks rationed every week, and people have to wear masks when they're in public spaces in every public every public building. And the transit system, you you have uh, dispensers for hand sanitizers, and they've managed to keep their economy going after a two week okay. shutdown. We need to we need to wait until we have that kind of, that kind of personal protective equipment for our healthcare workers, and then where we're able to get uh, you know masks for um, consumers so that we can go out and and get our economy back uh, going again. But in the meantime, right? You know, if if we don't deal with this properly, we're going to be looking at uh, the kind of mess that they have in the United States. Okay. And so, okay. Message heard. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Let's uh, check in now with Keith Baldry. Keith? Hey, Smitty. 
Let's start with um, the travel we saw over the weekend. Now, the, it's interesting that BC Ferries is saying, well, okay, the travel on the ferries is down mm-hmm. um, compared to a normal long weekend, which is not surprising. But I just we just got finished speaking to officials on the Gulf Islands saying there's still people not getting the message, right? There's still people showing up in, in these small communities, yeah. uh, tourists, even though like everything is pretty much shut down, there are still people maybe going stir crazy in the city want to get out. I mean, you can understand how people want to get outside. Yeah, I was but- getting I was getting a lot of emails from people on the Sunshine Coast. People live in Seashell and Gibson saying, you know, stay home. We don't need you right now. Uh, so there's a couple issues from their vantage point. One is uh, everybody has supply issues at the moment. Um, so the supply chain is still fairly robust, but every now and then you see shortages of certain goods, and that's exacerbated in these small towns when. Really, a couple hundred. When when you've only got you know five thousand people in a town, and suddenly seven hundred people show up. That has yeah, and they all hit the grocery store. Yeah, and uh, and there's also limited health care uh, right now. If you uh, if you have a, a bad accident, that's uh, that's a problem in some of these small towns now because of the uh, depleted healthcare system. So yeah, no people. Uh, I don't think people traveled as much as they normally would on a long weekend, but they still traveled fair numbers. I mean, we had pictures of of jam ferries. Uh, and again, uh, you know, Ganges on Salt Spring Island on Saturday can be a very crowded place. I'm sure it was very crowded this past Saturday as well. Yeah, I just got out. We just uh, spoke to uh, Tahira Rockefeller. She's a trustee from Galliano Island. And this is an amazing community leader over there. She's not only a trustee over there, so basically a, like a city councillor, but she's also runs one of the local grocery stores and she's a volunteer firefighter. Mm-hmm. So she's doing a lot there for that community. And her concern was there were people coming into a grocery store that were obviously just visitors. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, did any of your, and her, her employees were not happy about it. Did any of your employees confront any of these visitors and tell them to go home? And she said, well, no, we're trying to be, be we're polite, right? We're trying to be polite. But you need the government maybe to step in right now. You got man, Paul Manley, the Green MP, saying set up checkpoints. At the BC well, ferry b- terminals, Bonnie Henry is reluctant to really bring down the hammer on things. She she's taken the view, and I think with some success, that you try to convince people to change their behavior. You're not going to be 100 percent successful, but you're not going to be 100 percent successful with a, with an uh, automatic lockdown as well. You see, in, in jurisdictions in the states or or Ontario, people will defy certain rules, anyways, and there's nothing much you can do about that. Uh, so she's she's taken the view that. Uh, Public health orders are a last resort. You've got to convince people to to adopt this new type of behavior. And I have to say, I've seen so many examples of people keeping their physical distance from each other. Uh, It's very evident in the parks I I saw on the weekend. People were sitting in groups, but they were very spread out. Uh, The supermarkets, most of them, are very well structured right now with with six-foot lines. Uh, So you have to line up to get in, one-way aisles. uh, So businesses... I think sort of adapt to this new reality. I'm not sure a public order would necessarily change. Okay, speaking of Bonnie Henry, let's listen to a clip of her. Here she is. She was asked on the weekend about ferry travel to these smaller communities, and here's what she said. I did actually talk with um, BC Ferries to get a sense of whether um, some of the uh, perhaps uh, more uh, overblown reports are out there, and they do uh, report that, for one, uh, the ferries are only allowed to carry 50% of capacity, and we know that their um, the schedule has been dramatically reduced. And they did confirm that um, they're only seeing a fraction of the, the traffic that they would normally on this weekend. Okay, she's saying some of the reports are overblown, but... Well, Ferries was uh, running at 20%. 
capacity up until this weekend, and then they hit 50%. So that shows you what the increase was. It's, it's not 100%, and she mentioned the 50% rule. That's mandated by Transport Canada, yeah. and that's the number of people on board. Uh, so I think there's 2,100 on a Spirit class, so they can only have 1,100. But it doesn't mean the car deck can't be filled. I mean, the car deck is, is full. But instead of running 20%, which is what they've been doing since the outbreak began, they suddenly ballooned to 50%. It's still not 100%, but it's still an increase. Yeah, I mean, it's still not the same level of traffic, obviously, you would see before the dark times. On a, on, a long, oh, no. on a long weekend. But obviously, there are still uh, people that are not getting the message as well. It seems that so. twice the number of people that normally uh, travel on ferries in this dark time traveled this past weekend. Right. So, but not compared to normal times when you have, see a lot more. Is there anything else that the government should do or can do? I'm not sure you can really... I mean, people are saying, let's close the border with Alberta. Uh, I'm not sure how realistic that is. There's a lot of towns that live on either side of the border that cross back and forth for work and yeah. and, and such. So I don't think that's a realistic um, solution. And I don't think uh, checkpoints at, uh, ferries, at, at ferry terminals is, is a workable solution either. Let's talk about the uh, the B.C. government's quarantine measures. This is interesting that the, the, the provincial government brought in these new measures around quarantining people coming back to the country. Here is Premier John Horgan on that. Coming back to Canada and then stopping at the golf course to hit a bucket of balls and maybe going to pick up some groceries and stopping at a buddy's place is not self-isolation. So some of these things seem self-evident to those of us who have been doing this for the past number of weeks, but it's not necessarily self-evident to those who are arriving back into Canada. Grateful to be back here, to be sure. Uh, we want to make sure they have all the tools they need to make sure that our success is not diminished. Okay, the government rolling out some new measures to get, get people the message when they get on the ground, yeah. return to Canada. How is that working? Well, I talked to Mike Farnworth on the weekend. He conducted his own personal field inspection. He went to YVR. Uh, he checked out the the new system. He even texted me a, a picture he took of the sign, a COVID uh, a checkpoint that's actually there. It says, you must uh, present a plan for your self-isolation. So what, what's happening to international arrivals now? They have to present evidence that they have a plan to self-isolate for 14 days. They have to provide an address, uh, uh, figure out how they're going to get food, uh, this type of thing, how they're going to get from the airport to this place. All that has to be completed online before you arrive or a form that you're you're given. And if the authorities are not satisfied that uh, you've got a plan in place and you're going to stick to it, you will be escorted to a local hotel around the airport. So there's a number of hotels in Richmond that are vacant right now. So Farmer told me that he thought it was working pretty well. There's relatively few people actually traveling right now. He said one international plane arrived with nine people. Uh, so, uh, but by and large, he said pretty well everybody had a plan. There were a few people, though, that were escorted to a local hotel, and they're going to have to stay there for 14 days. Presumably their meals are paid for and such. Uh, not bad to sit in a, a, a nice one of those airport, airport uh, hotels for 14 yeah. days. But, yeah, though, uh, it's interesting, though. BC went on its own here. The airport is federal jurisdiction, but the feds said, fine, if you want to do this, okay. So the BC government is the only government uh, to take this measure. Farmer thinks uh, he, he'd be surprised if other uh, the other international airports that are operating right now in Canada are in Calgary, Toronto, and Montreal, along with Vancouver. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the provincial governments in those jurisdictions also step up and have a similar plan. Okay, bringing it back to some of the domestic issues facing the BC government here. Do you think the government did the right thing shutting down all provincial parks in the entire province? I mean, I, I can sort of see shutting down a busy park near Vancouver where a lot of people were jamming in. But some of the more remote regional parks, there's a lot. Now we're seeing a backlash against this. So the BC Outdoor Recreation Council... They represent like 55 groups around BC. Some mm -hmm. of them are like guide outfitters and stuff and people who outfit people going into, into some of these parks. Not happy 
that a lot of these parks have been shut down. Well, everybody so, wants to be a, an exception to the rule. I mean, I don't think they're going to get a lot of sympathy from restaurant owners right now who basically have lost their businesses because the, it all comes down to the social distancing rule. Uh, you can have an open park, even if you're on trails. Well, if, if there's a whole bunch of people on a trail and you're all passing each other at close distances. Yeah. Uh, also, these remote uh, parks, well, you have to get in your car and you have to drive there. And are you driving with a group of people? And the, it, it goes back to two basic edicts. One, don't travel. Is, is the message from Dr. Yeah. Bonnie Henry, and two, keep your physical distance. You put those two together, and it's hard to make an argument why the parks should remain open, because you, to, for them to remain open, you'd have to travel to get there, and you'd uh, come in contact with a lot of people. You I, spoke, uh, I spoke to a guy who's in sort of outdoor recreation business on the weekend, and you know, his take on it was, okay, close down the parks that are close to the big cities, because we can see there are some problems there, but let these more remote regional parks stay open but and, and that people would be able to socially distance some in some of these huge parks the thing is though like if you leave some of these parks open people are going to drive from the city to go to these parks and that's the, and that's then the they will point. go into these small towns and and yep. create the problem so i guess it's it you know there, there's an argument that you're better to overcompensate for this stuff than to not do enough. Exactly. And that's and that's uh, to Dr. Bonnie Henry's point is yeah. you you got to do everything you can and this is uh, true around the world. Everyone agrees the best way to fight this this virus and not get it is to keep your physical distance from people. Keep that 6 feet gap between you and everyone else. And the, m the more often you can do that, the better. And so any chance that that arises where that 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 chance of doing that is reduced because of your activities is not good. So opening parks, you're still liable. You have to drive there. You might drop into a town you normally wouldn't visit, and you might come in contact with people you normally wouldn't come in contact with. So it's a pretty blanket rule, and it yeah. applies to a lot of places. And again, I don't think a lot of restaurant owners are going to have a lot of sympathy for guide outfitters. We continue talking with Keith Baldry. Your calls to him, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. So got lots of calls, but real quickly, we were just talking during the commercial break. You sort of see this as sort of dragging on for quite a while, right? Like, do you, do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Not not immediately. Um, I mean, I go to every one of Dr. Bonnie Henry's briefings. Uh, I talk to Adrian Dix all the time. Uh, no, I don't see how this ends anytime soon. I don't see how there's going to be any easing of these restrictions. I can't imagine restaurants opening anytime soon in terms of sit-down meals. Uh, the physical distancing rule is the, of paramount importance. It's the bedrock of the entire strategy to fight this thing. Bonnie Henry said last week, until we find a, a vaccine, yeah. uh, she doesn't see much uh, easing. And vaccines at least a year away. Let's go to Glenn on the open line. Hi, Glenn. I've got a whole bunch. You guys brought up a whole bunch of stuff, but... First and foremost, careful what you wish for. First and foremost, do the people in small communities who need supplies, obviously they need toilet paper and food and everything else, do they not travel to bigger communities which could potentially run themselves into somebody in contact in a bigger community and bring it back to the island? Secondly, um, are we going to careful what you wish for? Are we going to put? Are we going to put police? Uh, a roadblock on every single community. They can't come into Burnaby because uh, you don't live in Burnaby. What's your purpose here? Like, we got to be very careful on, on, on where we're going here. Yes, we have to maintain uh, social distancing. And yeah. are you telling me that the people in the smaller communities can't do what they're doing in the city here and they got tapes on the lines and they only allow X amount of people in the store? They can't do this. Like, this is okay. not possible. Okay, Glenn, thanks for the call.
Well, I mean, we're not going to see roadblocks. I don't think we're going to see checkpoints. Well, we saw we saw a checkpoint outside of Tofino on on the weekend. They actually set up a checkpoint. Well, and, and they were t- and they were you know they weren't port- they weren't stopping people, but they were they would stop you. And yep. they would say, "What's your business here?" Yeah, but I don't think you're going to see the police do that. I think you're going to see local there was a, there was RCMP officer. Well, you got. Yeah, I think a good example is Port Renfrew, just uh, just west of here in Victoria, um, is refusing to serve people unless they're known to the community. They yeah. just won't let them buy stuff in the store. I think that's the stuff you're going to see uh, in the months ahead. And in terms of small people or small town people traveling, I'm not sure a lot of people are traveling right now. I mean, I, I live on Vancouver Island. I don't know anybody in Vancouver Island who's actually going over to the mainland right now on, on, on ferries for, for any purpose. It's a, it's a pretty, I think, hunkered down, sh- uh, shutter-in-place type mentality right now. Let's go to Sean. Hi, Sean. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, so, sure. Uh, our democratic country um we're used to being able to do whatever we want and get away with whatever we want and i think this is the reason china has put a clamp on on everything and and shut the covid virus down is because you know they tell people what to do and they have stringent rules to stay at home canada is way too lenient we're asking people do this do that and people aren't doing it and i can't see this virus ever going away until the government gets tough on everybody. Okay. You know? Okay, Sean. Th- we saw both ends of the spectrum here on two calls. Yeah. Like the first guy is like, this, turn it into a police state. Be careful what you wish for. And then the yeah. second caller is going, we're not going far enough. No. And I think it, again, speaks to the fact that everybody's got an easy solution to this, but the only solution is a vaccine. It has to be a science, uh, science based uh, solution to this, not. A tactical one, and uh, in terms of roadblocks and and lockdowns, because people will always defy that sort of stuff, and the virus will continue to live in the community. All it takes is one one person to carry that virus around, uh, even though they're not obeying the rules. But in, when we have a vaccine, everybody's vaccinated. Uh, yep. That's when this thing will end. But we're a long ways away from that, unfortunately. Let's go to um, Dave on the open line. Hey, Dave. Oh, hello, gentlemen. Um, you know, I just want to say, like, there's tons of people in my neighborhood walking around, going for a walk. So what difference is they walk around in the neighborhood here or walk around in, a, in you know, in other public uh, spaces or parks? I mean, they're, they're, they're still doing their thing. You know, the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is there's, some, you know, a number of golf courses that are open there, uh, open right now. And obviously, it's it's a lot easier to social distance on a golf course because they're so wide open. But the point I'm trying to make is is people are going to get out. They're going to want to get their exercise and this and that. So it's going to be really hard to, to curtail that. Okay, Dave, thank you. And that's why I don't think uh, uh, the proverbial lockdown would necessarily have that big an effect. People will defy that. And, and I think it's more better uh, to try to keep your social distance, your physical distance, even if you're out walking in the community, because you're just not going to prevent people from leaving their homes. People say, oh, shutter in place, uh, this type of thing. That doesn't actually happen. In California, which has pretty stringent lockdown measures, uh, has so many exemptions, you wouldn't know it uh, if there was an actual lockdown in some of those towns. So uh, it's up to people's own conscience, I think, to obey the new rules that are going to be part of us. Well, time. people will question the rules, though, and we're going to get into we're going to get into the ban on on the shutdown of all the provincial parks later in the show. So, if you're interested in that issue, make sure you keep it locked here. As we'll get into that later. James on the open line. Hi. Yeah. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, so, my uh, concern is I work in the uh, construction industry as a safety officer, and I see that nothing is really. Uh, being done with projects that are underway, condominium projects, not necessarily essential, uh, what they what they would classify as essential projects, but 
in this industry, I've even made some calls to Fraser Health and and uh, asked them who, who's going to be policing this sort of uh, social distancing, um, hair washing stations, porta potties. I mean, we've got you know groups of people you know together over top of each other working okay. on these projects, and they said uh, uh, the only people that you can call are the RCMP. We have no we have no uh, understanding of who would be doing that. And I'm thank just you, curious thank you for the thank you for the call. Thirty seconds. Keith. Well, anecdotally, the RCMP don't seem to be that interested right now in adding this particular policing responsibility to their to their work manual. I mean, we see this couple in North Cowichan, just north of Victoria, returned from Thailand uh, a couple of weeks ago, refused to go in self isolation, getting emails from everybody up there saying they've gone to the RCMP and how authorities. No, nothing nothing done. I Thank don't think that's going to. Uh, that's probably going to. Uh, that approach will likely continue in the weeks ahead. Thanks for coming in. All right, Keith Thanks Baldry, you. Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Thanks a lot for all your calls. We got your news coming up at the top of the hour. Then when we come back, let's talk about COVID nineteen behind bars, the outbreak of the virus in some prisons. I'm going to speak to the head of the union that represents BC prison guards. That's next. This is Mike Smith. Stick around. Let's continue talking about the COVID-19 pandemic now, and let's talk about the virus behind bars and some of the outbreaks of the coronavirus that we've seen in prisons. A couple of cases in uh, British Columbia at the Mission Institution. It's a, that's a federal prison. You've had uh, 35 inmates test positive for COVID-19 in, in that facility. That's a lot. Uh, that's a big percentage of the population in that particular jail. On the provincial side, the Okanagan Correctional Center in Oliver, B.C. as well has seen some cases. The B.C. government has released some nonviolent prisoners from some of these institutions to kind of spread people out and reduce the spread of COVID-19, but it continues to be a concern. Let's check in with Stephanie Smith now. She is the president of the B.C. GEU Union. They represent... Uh, prison guards and a lot of other workers in in BC. Thanks a lot for coming on. Hi, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Let's talk about, first of all, the people that you represent out there. You represent the prison guards, but you represent a whole bunch of other workers, right? Like you you guys got uh, workers in the long-term care homes as well, right? In the casino, casino workers, I think you represent them. They've all been shut down and lost their jobs, I guess, right? Yeah, well, um, listen, before we, uh, we start, I actually just wanted to, uh, you know, acknowledge the work that you and, uh, your fellow journalists have been doing over this, uh, crisis. I think it's been pretty outstanding. And I just wanted to say that, uh, watching the impact of the COVID crisis on local media has been really, really hard to watch. So just yeah. wanted to, uh, to say that. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, we represent 80,000 workers in the province of British Columbia and every community in the in the province and uh, we've run the gamut from as you said casino workers event staff at bc place um, our library staff hospitality staff who lost their jobs relatively early on in the crisis and then we represent tens of thousands of workers who've been deemed essential in health care child care our direct government workers for you know uh, the ministry of children and family development and uh, those who work as an employment assistance and and, of course, corrections and, and long-term care. Right. And what is your overall take on the management of, of, this, uh, of this outbreak of this pandemic? 
Well, I mean, certainly, um, you know, we were really heartened by the policy decisions made in terms of long-term care. Uh, It took a lot of work for the unions that represent those workers to come together, you know, the single site order that's now been been done. And, you know, um, I think it's been really clearly evident that the patchwork frame of healthcare delivery, whether it's in seniors care, community healthcare, or in facilities has, has really created some challenges in terms of our response. So, We're hoping to see that that coming together in that sector carries through after this. Um, Right from the beginning, we've been working with Corrections BC. You know, the provincial health officer identified correctional institutions uh, as very high risk, not dissimilar to long-term care. If an infection comes into the jail, it, it can be very, very problematic, as we're seeing is what's happening with Mission. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's talk about some of these jails and the outbreak in in the Mission Jail. Now that that is a, a a federal jail, so I know that that you don't represent the people who work at that particular jail, right? In Mission. No, that's correct. Right. So that's oh. Corrections Canada. We represent the provincial jails. Uh, so BC Corrections. The Mission Jail, though a federal one, that's kind of the biggest uh, the biggest outbreak of COVID nineteen, I believe, of any of any jail in the country. Let's have a listen to Doctor Bonnie Henry and and Greg. This is the first one in your rundown. There, can you talk? Uh, let's play you, Doctor Henry. Uh, here she is talking about the Mission Jail outbreak. And we have been uh, working very closely with our federal counterparts to ensure that they have everything they need to manage that outbreak. There are a number of both inmates and staff who've been affected, and the the total positive cases are up to 26 from that facility. As of yesterday, there were five um, people from the mission uh, facility hospitalized in B.C., Okay, I think they're up to 35 inmates positive there now, and who knows, it may be going up even higher than that today in the days ahead. And that's that's a lot of people. In a prison population, I think it's just over 200. So that's a significant percentage of the people, and I think it just shows the risk of how this thing can spread in a, in a facility like a jail. Yeah, it is true. Um, it is a, you know, it is a difficult facility to um, enforce social distancing, but it's not impossible. And um, I know at the top of your show, you mentioned um, the Okanagan Correctional Center. Yeah. Um, I have confirmed uh, as of yesterday that, in fact, there was only one inmate who tested positive there. And as of Friday, um, he is now lo- no longer in quarantine and um, is deemed to have recovered. So, um, you know, certainly from our perspective, uh, we, we're obviously doing something right. Um, you know, again, pushing Corrections BC, working with Corrections BC, doing uh, risk assessments at the jail, trying to mitigate uh, the virus getting into the jail. And in the case of Okanagan, it's a new facility. Um, they were able to isolate the inmate quite quickly. And, um, you know, fingers crossed, uh, we've been able to um, stop any further infection there. Okay, certainly a much less serious outbreak in that Okanagan provincial jail compared to that federal outbreak in, in Mission. Here is Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about that Okanagan uh, jail. We are continuing to work with uh, the correctional facility in the Okanagan as well. The The way the facility was set up enabled um, people to be isolated in different groups. Um, I know it's a more challenging situation in Mission, and we are in the middle of the incubation period in both those cases. So it is very likely or probability that there may be more people who show up with the disease, but um, the infection prevention and control pieces are in place in both 
of those um, places now. So it's a little bit more um, watching and seeing what's happening. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry, they're talking about the Okanagan Jail. Speaking to Stephanie Smith, she's the president of the union that represents the prison guards there. What are, could you talk a little, in a little bit more detail about some of the measures that have been taken in, in provincial jails here to stop the spread of this virus? Yes. So, <clears throat> excuse me, right from the get-go, you know, we were uh, asking and um, looking for greater screening of new intakes. Um, again, you know, trying to ensure that uh, routines were changed to limit group sizes, um, really getting them to enforce social distancing, um, and, and many of those measures have been taken. Uh, we do think that uh, there are you know, more steps, uh, of course, um, our members, not just uh, the corrections officers themselves, but we represent food service in some of the jails too and administrative support staff, you know, the access to sanitization, like um, sanitizing wipes or hand sanitizing. Um, you know, there's the ongoing concern about what would the access for personal protective equipment be and what is the level of personal protective equipment that would be necessary, particularly if you were having, um, you know, contact with an inmate who may be showing symptoms, those sorts of things. So um, right from the get-go, again, our activists, our occupational health and safety committees, um, our senior leadership has been working with the corrections branch to uh, put in as many safety measures as possible to keep both the inmate population and our, our members safe. Okay, and do you have enough personal protective equipment on hand here to deal with this right now? Well, what I understand is that each of the corrections officers in their kit do have access to a mask and to gloves. I mean, in a blue sky scenario, um, you know, an N95 mask would be ideal, uh, particularly if there's direct contact with, um, you know, an inmate who may be um, suspected of having COVID or that sort of thing. But we fully agree that, you know, that level of personal protection equipment really needs to be um, reserved for frontline healthcare workers until such time as, you know, there is enough stock for everybody. Okay, what about releasing some prisoners if they're nonviolent offenders, release them from jail in order to reduce the chance of the spread uh, of this? And the government has done some of this. I mean, people who've been serving time on weekends, for example, have been, have been released. But what, what about the concept of releasing prisoners? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, of course, our union doesn't have a position on that. Those are decisions that are made outside of my jurisdiction, because for sure. Wouldn't it, wouldn't, it directly, um, wouldn't it directly impact your people, though? Well, um, we do represent community corrections officers as well, and uh, those are the folks who um, do monitoring in the community. But as you mentioned, out of the 95 that we know have been released as of April 2nd, most of them were what's called intermittent sentencing. So these are people who are in the community from Monday to Friday, check into the jail on a weekend, and um, they've simply stopped the checking in on the weekend piece, which you know makes perfect sense because the back-and-forth transmission um, we've been talking to our community corrections folks at this point. They haven't seen an increase in their workload, but we'll continue to monitor that. Um, these decisions have to be made to balance both the inmate population, the staff population, um, their health and safety, but also community safety too. And as I said, you know, those aren't decisions that we make, but um, we're willing to work with Corrections BC in any way we can, uh, as long as it doesn't violate the provincial health officer's orders. My guest is Stephanie Smith. She's the president of the BCGEU union. She represents long-term care facility workers. 
Uh, they also represent prison guards in BC where we've seen some outbreaks of the virus. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's go to Heather on the open line. Hi, Heather. Hello. How are you guys? Uh, good, good. Good. Go Hi, Mike. I talked to you last week when Keith Baldry was on. Uh-huh. And I mentioned, or I asked, why uh, long-term care homes were not having temperature checks done on the workers right. prior to coming in. And also, the workers can't social distance. Why is it they're not put in place where they have to wear masks? I hear it's optional. And I have, meant, I have emailed back and forth with the uh, director of resident services of my mom's care home. Yeah. And I wasn't given a, a complete answer. I was told she's following the orders of the provincial health officer. Um, so those haven't been ordered to do, and I'm just so upset and confused as to why not. Okay, I remember your call, and I'm glad you called in again. Stephanie Smith, uh, what do you think about her concerns? Well, I mean, I, I, again, I can't answer for, um, you know, why the provincial health officer makes the orders she makes. Um, you know, my understanding is that uh, one of the biggest challenges, of course, in long-term care homes was the fact that so many workers were working at a number of different sites. Um, you know, it, again, when much of this work was privatized and uh, contracted out, it really changed the structure of, of the delivery of service. And, um, you know, uh, the members that we represent and, and other unions, other healthcare unions like HEU and, and others, um, you know, we saw huge reductions in salaries and so people had to work two or three different jobs. What, what so, about her? What about her specific concerns, though? I mean, she's got her mom in a long-term care yes, facility. Yes, and she's, no, she's I understand. It's a very, yeah. very concerning time. And so, uh, again, I I don't have any answer in terms. My understanding is that our members, for certain, um, you know, have been requesting uh, personal protective equipment, wearing masks, gloves, gowns. Um, but I I don't have an answer for her. Specific question. Is it, is it, is it, was she correct when she said that wearing a mask in a long-term care facility for a staff member is optional? I, I again, I haven't heard such a thing. Um, I, you know, I can certainly follow up. My understanding yeah. was that um, many, many care aides are wearing uh, masks, and yeah. uh, I, my, my grandmother uh, lives in a long-term care, and she was saying that that all the staff in her center are and. Um, you know, that they are practicing social distancing. She was telling me some of the routines that they, they have changed to accommodate that. So yeah. I'm not certain how it is in every long-term and, care residence in the province. And what about, she would like to see temperature checks done on the staff. What do you think of that <clears throat> idea? Well, I mean, again, I think uh, what is happening is that... Uh, places are following the the orders of the provincial health officer yeah. um if that is something that what, is what mandated you, what, what and we like, know those orders change um rapidly what, what like, in response what would you like to see so, done what would you like to see done though as the president of the union i mean these are your people on the front lines right I yeah mean, no i mean again anything that can be done to to protect the safety uh we're ready and willing to to do whatever is necessary uh and of course primarily to protect the safety of the residents Right. Let's go to Jennifer on the open line. Hi. Good morning. Hi, go ahead. Uh, My question is for individuals who have to do regular blood work at Life Labs and places like that, what's the process in place to help them for seniors to go in and get this work done and whether they should forgo it or not? Okay, thank you for the call. I I don't think you guys don't represent Life Labs, do you? 
we actually do. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, I Not come to the right person. Them, but okay. yes, we actually do. Okay. Um, my understanding, and again, I don't speak for Life Labs. I think probably your caller can get that information um, by directly speaking with them. But um, I, 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 I myself have to go for regular blood work, uh, like many others. I actually am. Um, I have a autoimmune disorder, so I'm very, very mm. consciously aware of you know the impact of this pandemic on on workers who are concerned if they themselves are autoimmune or they have people in their families. Um, And so my understanding is that the the most important thing is to make the appointment so that they can uh, ensure that, you know, the offices don't have as many people in them and you're not in a lineup, you're not sitting in a waiting room waiting. But I would advise her to call Life Labs and and to uh, speak to them about the process. Thank you for coming on, and may I say thank you to all the very brave frontline healthcare workers and, and system workers that you guys represent there, and I appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having us, Mike. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith as we continue talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the big announcements from the provincial government came last week in response to the virus shutting down all provincial parks in British Columbia. Man, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. Like if you are, let's say you are uh, living in an apartment or something and you're going a little stir crazy, people want to get outside. I can sort of see maybe shutting down some of these provincial parks, especially if they're close to the big city and they're being overrun with people. But shutting down all the parks in British Columbia, uh, some people not too thrilled with that idea, including the Outdoor Recreation Council of B.C., who have said that this could maybe backfire on people. If you have some of the smaller municipal parks are still open, uh, don't you risk people maybe crowding into those parks? If you could have people spread out, you keep some of the provincial parks open. But look, I agree, this is a tough one, especially when you're trying to achieve physical distancing during this pandemic. Let's talk about it now. Sam Waddington is on the line. He's the owner of Mount Waddington Outdoors. He relies on the provincial park system for his business. Sam, thanks for coming on. Not a worry. Happy to be here. Appreciate it. What do you think about this decision to shut down all the all the provincial parks? Yeah, it's, uh, well, these are tough times, and it's a, it's just, a, I think, a, a little bit more of the same um, policy approach of just sort of these broad stroke um, initiatives, and, and I think in this case, uh, it's a little bit um, it's a little bit overkill. I, I think the Outdoor Recreation Council probably said it well when, um, you know, they talked about where we're going to force people. The the challenge is those, those urban dwellers who are still needing to get outside, you know, off-leash dog parks are closed, all these things where they're trying to get outside and have exercise and keep their families healthy and, and moving, and, uh, and we're shutting down options for them to do so. And um, I think there's probably a more nuanced approach that could be uh, could be had. Can you th- do you can you think of a provincial park that probably should be shut down? In your opinion, if there, if there was a danger of too many people, or like it's maybe one of the more popular parks, maybe shut it down. Yeah, exactly. Like when when people like what, think what, about what would be the- an example of that. What what park do you think should be shut down? Well, I would look to Garibaldi, to be honest, yeah. and Golden Ears, like those two main parks that facilitate the Metro Vancouver area. Um, and I, I say that with, he- with hesitation because they're gorgeous and they're huge, and there are places where there are remote trails that you can get into. Um, but for the most part, the vast majority of users in those parks 
are using those front country and day use kind of areas. And it would be very hard to describe to people which areas are inbounds and which are out of bounds in, in a closure. So closing those kind of parks, I absolutely see. But this is a huge province, um, and it's predominantly rural. And there's definitely a lot of places where these parks could stay open and people could keep their distance, and it would be a great asset. Can you give me an example of a park you think should be allowed to stay open and it would be safe? Yeah, well, I mean, basically anything in central and northern BC, um, with very few exceptions, um, could remain open. Um, and a lot of the BC parks on, you know, central and northern Vancouver Island can certainly remain open. Those those rural users, um, I think, could uh, and probably are continuing to use some of the trail networks and that sort of thing. Um, but I also think that there's an opportunity here to do what we have always done in every other case of park closures. Um, park users are really used to seeing specific trails closed. Um, we think back to, you know, some of the big landslides up in Joffrey uh, area and certain trails were closed there and other trails were not in the exact same provincial park. It doesn't have to be um, that every single park gets closed. Okay, I, we started off the show today, Sam, talking about some of small town British Columbia's, uh, British, in British Columbia, a lot of them are tourist towns. At the best of times, they welcome visitors with open arms. But these are the dark times, and they don't want people coming to their town. And I got a feeling that if you talk to some of these small communities, the councillors and mayors, let's say on Vancouver Island, like you said, why not keep the parks open on Vancouver Island? I got a feeling that some of these communities would say, hell no, because we don't want people showing up and going into our grocery stores or coming into our community and potentially spreading the virus. Yeah, and and I and I hear that loud and clear. Um, and uh, and I think I live in one of those communities. Um, Chilliwack and Cultus Lake uh, both have issued, um, you know, directives saying please stay away and uh, and and use trails near your own community and and that sort yeah. of thing. Um, but I think it's it's exactly because we have these these discrepancies in in urban and rural that. Number one, we need to be always providing good park space close to people's homes, and these moments show us why that's so important. Um, but also, um, I think I think we're at the stage of this crisis right now where um, we need to begin a n- more nuanced approach. And I and I again, I understand the need to close in certain places, but yeah. but we're not in this. If we were in this for a couple weeks short term, I would absolutely stand behind the directive that the province came out with. But um, I think, for instance, Rec Sites and Trails BC has come up with a better um, initiative. So, I mean, there's a multiple categories of parks, and I think a lot of people are, you know, lump them all together or think about BC parks as sort of the main area where they recreate. But um, the majority of British Columbia is forestry lands that are managed by Rec Sites and Trails BC if there's trails there. And um, and so those are not in parks, and they are not closed. Um, yeah. There is uh, a certain closure, which refers to all recreation sites with camping facilities, um, but any other trails are are open, and uh, and those are a lot of your backcountry trails, and, and good mapping apps and, and certainly good, good flat maps will show you the jurisdictional boundaries between what's in parks and what's not in parks, well, but those I, are appropriate I, measures, right? I, I wonder if shutting down some of the logging roads and some of the recreational sites on, that are accessed by these logging roads might be the next on the hit list to, sh- to shut down. But, but when you mentioned rec sites and trails, when they manage these forest camping sites and stuff, what is their approach during this pandemic? How are they keeping people safe? Yeah, so they've said that camping areas and recreation sites, meaning like main staging areas and those kinds of zones, those, those um, grouping areas are closed. But all their trails are open, um, at least at this yeah. point. 
Um, and the only exceptions to that are places where a municipality or a regional district are the are the ones maintaining it. So we have one of those out here where I'm from in, in Chilliwack. Uh, Elk Mountain is a well-known hike for lots of folks in the lower mainland out to Vancouver. Um, that's maintained by the regional district, so it is closed. But other hikes in the Chilliwack River Valley and up out of Harrison and, and um, in through the Hope area are open because they're managed by rec sites and trails. So I think, I think there's this way to say, you know what, those most popular hikes that people conglomerate to um, probably should be closed because there is not a very uh, healthy approach. People, I've seen trailheads here in Chilliwack over the last couple of weeks with 180 cars lined up along the sides of the road. Um, wow. And there's no way on a trail that's only a couple kilometers long that you can find an appropriate distance from from others. So, I I, I get the initiative. I'm not trying to sound cavalier here, but um, but again, we're going to be in this for the long haul. I think for for the summer, and there's going to be a lot of folks who say this is draconian, and then they break the rules instead of saying there are ways to do it appropriately. There are trails that we can open appropriately, and and um, let's find that balanced approach that gets everyone through this. Um, while maintaining other aspects of health that I think are also important, which is, you know, those mental health components. And uh, and for a lot of folks who have an active lifestyle, um, this is a really tough time to, to be cooped up inside, and especially kids and those sorts of things. So I think okay. that we can get outside and we can play and we can recreate safely. Um, you know, if if we're going to – I've seen more folks out enforcing these um, um, these new measures than I ever saw out – um, helping people orientate their way into the backcountry and 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 learn proper practices and tell people that this trail is now you know at capacity. Please find a different zone today. I think that would be a soft hand approach where you could have um, ministry staff and you could have park staff and you could have all the contractors who are standing around right now um, not fulfilling their massive recreation contracts they have with the province of BC to maintain these sites that now are closed okay. to help people get into these areas safely and to more manage um, this this issue rather than just go to full closure. Talking about closing down all of British Columbia's provincial parks, getting lots of emails and tweets on this one. Grace says to me on my email, closing the parks is overkill. If people can keep a distance in the grocery store, they can certainly do it in parks. Thank you, Grace, for that. And then Reginald says to me on the other side of it, he goes, I'm staying home because I'm told that's what I have to do. And then other people say they can go out hiking and camping. It doesn't make any sense to me. Phone me up now on the open line and tell me what you think. 604-280-9898, star 9898, on, toll free on your cell. Louise Peterson is the, is the head of the Outdoor Recreation Council. Hi, Louise, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Mike. What do you think about this decision to close all the parks? Do you think some of them could be left open? Yeah, I would like to think that, you know, that people are responsible uh, and that they can keep the, the, the distance. As I, did, I did listen in a little bit to, to what Sam was saying as well. You know, it would be great to have, you know, people out there, park rangers, maybe volunteers, uh, just, let, you know, just reiterating that message of kind of keeping keeping safe distances. You know, we have to remember, too, that, yeah, we, we've been told to, to stay home, stay local, but a lot of provincial parks are in, you know, really close to where people live. I live in North Vancouver. I've got two beautiful provincial parks that are very close to where I live, too. Um, so so these are, these are people's uh, lo- local parks, and, and, you know, in my opinion, they are pretty amazing places for spacing out or for keeping that distance. Um, yeah. That there must be, and we are hopeful that there are ways to... Uh, 
you know, to, to open, open the parks up again and, and, and let people, you know, enjoy, enjoy themselves this winter, sorry, this summer, sorry, this summer. Um, because, it, you know, it's really hard on people's uh, physical and, and mental health, uh, you know, st- staying indoors. Um, and, and the parks are just, you know, great for, um, you know, yeah, get, getting outside, getting that uh, fresh air and, and, and feeling the sun. That's also what the, the provincial health officer is, is, is recommending, that we do get outside. Okay, Louise Peterson, Outdoor Recreation Council. Let's see what the people think about it in the open line. Hi, Andrew. Hey, guys. I just uh, really want to say I'm calling to you guys from Blue River right now and listening to you on the radio up here. And uh, surrounded by some amazing provincial parks like Wells Gray. And my fear is that if you guys start shutting down and opening up limited parks down at the coast, you guys are going to drive a lot of people up here. And there's absolutely no doctors on hand today until Thursday, actually. There is no resources at the grocery store, no supplies for anything. So if somebody has an emergency, it's going to require medical people. It's going to require search and rescue plus supplies that are absolutely not up here. So you would say, so you would agree with shutting all the parks down? You have Correct. to, because either way, eight hours from Vancouver, you can reach a lot of different parks, and you're just going to drive everybody up here, and there's just no help up here for people. Okay, Louise, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, the advice is still that we don't that we don't drive anywhere. You know, that we just reduce stay stay local. Uh, you know, I, th- I think you know people understand. You know, it is really important that people understand that message that we don't want to overburden smaller communities with very limited, uh, you know, facilities or ability to 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 take care of people who who get sick. We don't want to spread the virus. But as, right. as I said before, you know, a lot a lot of provincial parks are right. You know, uh, you know, it's, it's it's where a lot of people live. You know, so. So, well, yeah, could you do I, hoping- could you do a thing where I don't know is it possible to bring in a system where you open the parks only to locals local use? Is that what you mean? Um, well, that would be up to to BC Parks to kind of respond to that. I, I, yeah. I'm not sure that much. I'm, I'm just hoping that maybe we could be creative and uh, and and figure out you know some some systems that work for everybody. Definitely, you know the the biggest priority right now is keeping everybody healthy. Um, but yeah, you know the, the mental and physical health is is, yeah. is of course important as well. Philip on the open line. Hi. The the whole point of staying home is so that the emergency services and all the ambulances and all the policemen don't have to run around after us. I mean, the people out driving their fancy uh, rebuilt cars and people bike riding in groups and stuff. Do we not understand? Stay home. And let's get through this, and then we can return to normal. Everybody has a vested interest. This interest is stop the virus and save all these lives. Can you imagine? I just don't understand. What's wrong with these people? Philip, thank you for the call. Let's squeeze in one more. Robert on the open line. Hi. Hi there. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I agree with the closure. I've been mountain biking on Burke Mountain for the last 20 years. It's been a quiet solitude mountain where you wouldn't see anybody on the weekends or during the week the last couple of weekends it's been two to three hundred people there's a new trail that was built that has a bunch of stunts and two weekends ago i ran into a family that was busy videotaping their son on walking up one of the stunts not paying attention to the mountain bikers going down the hill and i was going slow so i was able to stop but if it had been my 16 year old son he probably would have hit that child because the ramp was around the blind corner okay, so with so, the amount of people it's getting dangerous there okay so you would agree with shutting all the parks down yep 
Absolutely. Okay, Robert, thank you for the call. Do you think, though, that the letter that you wrote to, to the government, Louise, pointing out that if you shut all these provincial parks down, maybe people start crowding into local municipal parks and that that could be a hazard too? Yeah, well, well that's definitely what, what I think we, we might be seeing. You know, as, as you, you close down more parks, you, you know, people want to get outside in a, in a yeah. safe way. Um, so, so you are going to see more, more crowding in, um, in, in, in um, uh, regional parks and in, in municipal parks. Okay, is there... Um, is there yeah, a- yeah, I mean... Is there an economic cost to shut? We just got a minute left here, but is there an economic cost to shutting down the parks as well? And uh, say outfitters that rely on it, the park system. Yeah, sure. Like that's a lot of uh, you know everybody is uh, you know being being hit hard by this. But I mean that should I, I I'm not sure that that's the uh, uh, that that is our, like a really our main concern now is to to make sure everybody is safe. Uh, we right. we just hopeful that as soon as as we are able to kind of open up parks, you know that. Yeah, that, that that we can do so, but it has to be you know it has to be safe. Um, everybody wants to make sure that we we get out of it okay. um, uh, the the best part in the best possible way. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Let's go live to Washington D.C. now and talk about the fight against the coronavirus south of the border. Just checking out U.S. President Donald Trump's Twitter just now. Just a few hours ago, uh, Trump said that the fake news are saying that it's the governor's decision to open up the economy in the United States, not the president and uh, not the federal government. As you know, Trump has said he wants the economy up and running again by May 1st. A couple of weeks from now, I'm not sure he's going to be able to pull that off. But a lot of people point out a lot of this is state jurisdiction, some of these lockdowns. Trump tweeting here just in the last few hours, it is the decision of the president, and for many good reasons. Can Trump really do this? Can he get the economy opened up by May 1st without the governors approving it as well? Also, check this out. Trump retweeting one of his conservative followers about Dr. Fauci and whether he should be fired of course, Dr. Anthony Fauci is the head of Trump's advisory team and action team on the coronavirus. He's been somewhat critical of the president. And now Trump retweeting a tweet saying it's maybe time to fire Fauci. Is Trump going to fire him? Let's check in with uh, Reggie Cicchini now. He is the global Washington producer and correspondent. Hey, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, it never it never ends. We all there's there's always something to talk about in the United States. It just seems to change by the hour. Let's start with Fauci first of all. I mean, here you got a guy who's probably one of the most respected and leading experts in the world on infectious diseases. He's the head of uh, Trump's task force on on the coronavirus. Is Trump going to fire him? Like, why would Trump retweet something like that? Is he thinking of firing this guy? Well, so this is kind of the unanswered question as to what the president was thinking when he clicked the retweet button over the weekend from this kind of right-leaning Trump supporter, once-failed congressional candidate in California, who had put that hashtag out there, Fire Fauci. Look, Anthony Fauci has been facing uh, a serious number of uh, bits of criticism from people who are close to the president and from the president's followers, because he oftentimes undercuts what the president has to say and uses facts and science to 
to back up his conversation, whereas the president often uses uh, just the words that are coming to his mouth when he is speaking about uh, coronavirus and how to move forward with that. Uh, I can say within the last kind of 15 or 20 minutes, we're hearing reports from inside the Trump administration that it's kind of, um, quote unquote, ridiculous or media chatter about the president wanting to fire Fauci, except the president's the one who retweeted this. We don't know why he did it and we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Okay, I think when the president's retweeting something that says "fire Fauci," it's it's uh, legitimate to ask whether he's planning to fire Fauci at all. Like, do you th- is it possible that he could do this though? I mean, tr- Fauci has been critical of the president, right? What exactly has Fauci said about uh, Trump's handling of the virus? Well, so over the weekend, uh, Dr. Fauci was on U.S. cable, and he was essentially saying that if the U.S. had acted earlier, more lives could have been saved. And the president from the right. beginning has said that he's acted fine, that he was the first person to put a ban on place for uh, travel from China, which is not factually correct, and that the president has done everything he can to save American lives. Dr. Fauci countered that by saying the U.S. acted too slowly, and the New York Times put a sprawling article out over the weekend that details the shortcomings of the Trump administration. Uh, should also point out it is not uncommon for the president to get rid of somebody in his administration or close to his administration if they go against what the president says he's done this in the past he did it two weeks ago with an inspector general it's unlikely that he'll fire dr anthony fauci in the middle of this pandemic but with this president uh we have to we've learned to expect the unexpected okay speaking to washington global bureau chief reggie chikina reggie let's talk about whether trump can get the the american economy up and running by May 1st. His original target was Easter Sunday. Of course, that has come and gone, and we still see a lot of lockdowns in place across the country. Now he's talking about May 1st. But a lot of analysts have pointed out, isn't the state's jurisdiction he would need, wouldn't he need the governors on side to lift a lot of these lockdown orders at the state level? And Trump disputing that on Twitter in the last few hours, saying that this is a decision of the U.S. president. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, there's a lot to break down with what the president sees for getting the economy reopened. It is up to states whether or not they are going to allow their business to unlock and allow people to start shopping again. Remember, there is no national rule put in place by the president that locks states down. He said that was unconstitutional. He's now trying to use the Constitution to say that he has the uh, large authority and powers to compel states to do what they want to do, uh, do what he wants them to do. So it's a tale of two sides right here. It's a federalist country. States are act as their own uh, independent areas. They're sovereign from a lot of parts of the federal government. The president would have to get some kind of congressional act approved for him to force states to do what he wants to do when it comes to reopening the government, probably not going to happen. Uh, right now, there are a number of governors uh, from the northeastern U.S., including Governor Murphy of New Jersey, uh, Governor Cuomo, Connecticut's governor. They're holding a news conference right now as to how they intend to start opening up their part of the country. So this is going to be a state-led initiative. The president is just trying to make it seem like it's going to be at his direction. Okay, the, the Trump saying on Twitter that this is uh, the president's going to lead on, on this thing. Is, is there any indication that the Trump White House has got a plan to actually open the economy back up in such a short time frame? Like I'm wondering, like vital services like air transportation, surface transportation, can he safely reopen these systems without triggering another wave of infections? 
that's the big unanswered question right now. Health experts around the president have repeatedly said you cannot just simply flick the switch, turn the country on, because as we know, testing across the U.S., despite what the administration says, is not widespread and has no, the president has no intention of making it widespread. So therefore, it makes it more difficult to target and isolate any silent outbreaks that are occurring around the U.S. So if parts of the country are to reopen and an outbreak uh, starts up again, it puts the country at risk for a second time and possibly a third time down the road. So the president, despite the fact that his health advisors are saying you have to go slow, he's going full throttle with this to try and get it open for May 1st. Now, we could see May 1st come around and he says, well, this was just another quote-unquote aspirational goal, much like Easter was, that the timelines kind of change with the goalposts as you run down the field. Uh, But in, in, in kind of President Trump's land and President Trump's mind, he does what he wants, and if it doesn't happen, it'll just be somebody else's fault. Trump is undoubtedly thinking about the political timetable with the presidential election coming up in the fall, and he's talked about this hope and desire for a big bang rebound in the economy. If the economy can get back up and running in the United States this summer, maybe it helps him with his re-election chances in the fall as he faces off against Joe Biden. Who, who is now the, the clear Democratic nominee for president. What is going on with Biden, Reggie? He seems to be, shouldn't Biden be taking more high-profile uh, public posture these days? He seems to be kind of lying low. I, well, I mean, here's the thing. Joe Biden right now being the presumptive nominee for the Democratic Party uh, still understands that at the top level of the government, President Trump is still president of the United States and he is the face of the U.S. government. And I think that what Joe Biden's strategy is right now is to let the president do what he thinks is best and then let Joe Biden sit off to the sides and either call out the mistakes by holding his own news conferences or doing more media availabilities, but also by incorporating this into his campaign as we head towards November by saying, here are the things that the president did wrong. Here are the things that I will be able to rectify and do right if I win in November and we're ever faced with this kind of a challenge again. I think it's a it's a matter of couching it so that Joe Biden lets the president or builds the president up for potential failure and then is there to catch the windfall from it and say, here's how I'll do it differently. Okay, how are relations right now between the United States and Canada as both countries fight this uh, fight this coronavirus? We, We saw the dispute over personal protective equipment and whether Trump was going to try and prevent the export of N95 masks to Canada. It looks like that's been resolved. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall as they, as they work through that one in the background. What have you been able to hear about how they, how they managed to get beyond that? Well, look, this is 3M kind of acting in their own way. The president used his powers under the Defense Production Act to compel 3M to start creating all of these uh, these items to be distributed amongst uh, the United States. But at the end of the day, 3M is also an international company. It has uh, factories that are located in jurisdictions that aren't the United States. And it's not up to the president to tell a company with with an office uh, in another country that they cannot ship their, their, uh, their, their materials to countries who have already paid for it. And I think 3M uh, tried to get it through to the president by saying, look, if you direct us to tell another country that we cannot send our stuff to them, you do run the risk of facing some kind of retaliation and you may end up on the losing side if other companies decide to bail out on providing not only equipment to 3M, but equipment to the rest of the United States. I think this was kind of a tit-for-tat. The president may have overextended his arm when trying to use his powers. Uh, Conversations between Washington and Ottawa ultimately kind of allowed for 3M to do what it was supposed to do, which is providing manufactured goods to the U.S. while also continuing their business model to provide to the world. Uh, uh, and, you know, that rectified itself. I think the countries are still trying to work in tandem. They're still trying to, you know, uh, ensure that travel is kept at a minimum and back and forth. And it's a big conversation right. going on between uh, the two nations, including Mexico as well right now, because we're in an uncertain time and they're kind of taking this day by day. Reggie, thanks for taking the time. Thank you.
We all know the COVID-19 pandemic has changed all our lives, but how exactly has it changed the movement of British Columbians around the province as we deal with the pandemic? Well, Google has revealed some new data that shows just how much the lives of British Columbians have changed due to the physical distancing requirements brought in by the province and the federal government to combat the spread of COVID-19. Our own Claire Allen has been breaking down this Google data for us. Hi, Claire. Hey, Mike. Yeah, so pretty interesting data. As you said, uh, Google has taken a look at how, you know, our behavior has changed, our movements have changed during, um, you know, these social distancing measures that have been put in place to combat the spread of COVID-19. Now, in Canada, these measures were particularly seen between March 8th and 29th, but of course, they're still ongoing. Um, and Google collected this data from uh, what they're showing is from uh, February 23rd, which was a Sunday, to Sunday, April 5th. But what's interesting about this data, Mike, is that it's it's only from people who have opted in to share their location services with Google. So not everybody uh, for privacy reasons, but for people only who have opted in to share. And then they compare what they've seen during the pandemic with a baseline period um, that was between uh, January 3rd to February 6th. Okay, so, so this is from your cell phone, right? So they can tell yeah. like where your movements are, tra- how they're tracking your movement on your cell phone if you've clicked the share that data on your phone. Exactly. So it'll track where you go and how long you spend in a particular location. So let's start off with retail and recreation. So according to the data tracked by Google, our movements related to retail and recreation have dropped 54% by March 29th, which was compared to the baseline, with a drop starting to be noticeable just before the week starting on Sunday, March 15th. So, you know, shopping, any sort of like clothing shopping that you wanted to do or any sort of recreation just plummeted. All the rec centers closed, all the gyms closed, limited yep. shopping opportunities. Yeah, not surprising all the there. Stores, sure. All the stores are, ball, are boarded up. Malls are shut down. Um, CKNW, you know, we're, we're located close to Pacific Center Mall in downtown Vancouver. That mall is completely shut. And uh, Robson, which is just up the street from us, everything is boarded up. So that was pretty interesting and also probably, you know, not very surprising that nobody is going out and doing any sort of retail recreational uh, activities. The next thing that Google looked at was grocery and pharmacy, which I thought was pretty interesting because there was a surge in visits around March 15th and then a pretty sharp drop off. Uh, Google is reporting that visits are now 30 percent lower than the baseline of uh, January 3rd to February 6th. However, if you drive by a grocery store and you see lines up around the block, you'd think, oh, man, it's busy. I don't want to go. But that's just because they're practicing the social distancing measures. Yeah, I think a lot of people maybe at earlier on were doing some of that panic buying, maybe stocking up a little bit. And then as we get longer into the sort of pandemic groove that we're all in here, I think maybe things have calmed down a little bit in the stores. I think you're right. I went to Costco this weekend to get some stuff for my grandma over in West Vancouver. I drop it off outside of her door. And I had to wait in a line that went at the Costco in downtown Vancouver that went down three levels of the parking lot. So I was at the very bottom of P3. But once you get in there, you know, they're practicing social distancing and making sure their customers and their staff are safe. So you're actually, you know, it's quite, there's nobody in there. It's just limited amount of people. So 30% drop 
in visits to grocery and pharmacy uh, since this COVID-19 pandemic has uh, begun. Now, okay. transit stations seem to have taken the biggest hit during this pandemic. According to the data gathered by Google, visits to transit stations are down 61 percent. Contributing uh, in, in BC, contributing to that drop could be the fact that, you know, Google's reporting that work trips to work and spending time at work is down 47 percent, while time at home has increased by 13 percent. OK, I'm surprised the time at home hasn't gone up more than that. Most of us are hunkered down. Yeah, I guess a lot of us are just regular homebodies, so okay. we're only up 13% more. Now, what was really interesting, Mike, is uh, the, amount of acti- the amount of time we're spending at parks. Oh, yeah. So I know you were just talking about provincial parks being shut down. Right. Um, but, you know, s- parks that are managed by the city or, munis- or municipalities, you know, those are still open. There are lots of parks in my neighborhood that are still open. And surprise, surprise, visits are up. So they've rose yep. 27% compared to the baseline. Uh, but it's had significant up and down spikes over time. And so the first notable spike happened between the week starting March 15th and ending dur- uh, March 22nd. During this period, movements involving parks rose 80% above the baseline, only to drop below the baseline on March 22nd. So um, then movement spiked again, rising 40% above the baseline, only to drop sharply 40% below the baseline after that. And uh, right. it's just up and down. But, you know, it's, it's risen considerably. And compared to other provinces, we are up quite a bit. However, we have nicer weather here than some of our other provinces. So that uh, would probably be why we're seeing more visits to the park here. Okay, we got 30 seconds, Claire. Real quick, what about this poll from Angus Reid? So what I thought, Angus Reid is out with a, uh, with, a, with a poll today talking about what Canadians are looking forward to once this is over. You know, we just talked about how our behavior has been changed. 45% of Canadians are saying they're looking forward to giving somebody a big hug, you know, having that social interaction, <laughs> that physical interaction with people. And 34% say they can't wait to see and hang, hang out with people outside of their households. You know, they're getting sick and tired of spending time with, you know, their spouse, their kids. They want to see other people. <laughs> so it would be nice. They, they're saying they're looking forward to seeing friends that they have not, that are not part of their household. Thank you for that, Claire. Thanks, Mike.